Well, my name is Kyle. I'm the lead pastor here, and I just want to say thank you. Kind of echo what Alan mentioned a moment ago. Thank you so much for worshiping with us today. Uh, we hope that you enjoy your time with us. Today is uh, going to be fun for all intents and purposes. All right. Uh, we've, we're going to spend some time talking about the mission of this church uh, as it relates to the mission of Christ Church. And so uh, if you're visiting with us, you picked a really good Sunday to come. I think you'll hear a lot about our heart today and kind of why we're here and, and what we're after. There won't be a lot of history and things like You can find all that stuff on the website, things we believe, those kinds of things. Those are going to be on the website. You'll get to hear some more, uh, maybe more practical application of how those things play themselves out here uh, today. So anyway, but uh, if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Ephesians 1. And I just want to mention this kind of at the onset of this, beginning this topic. Um, our mission as a church is this, and you can find it on the front of your worship guide, but it's we exist to glorify God by making disciples who grow in their faith in Jesus and their love for one another. All right? We exist to glorify God by making disciples who grow in their, lo- in their faith in Jesus and their love for one another. All right, That's kind of what we're after today. We want to talk about what, what does that mean? Because a lot of times people write mission statements, they just they look pretty, right? We, we did more than just write something that sounds pretty. We, we want it to be applicable to what we're after. So uh, before we dive into that, can we pray? And before we pray, I just want to mention this to you. Uh, got a text last night. We had a family in our church who uh, does foster care, and one of their children that is in their foster care slipped on some bubbles that had spilled on concrete, and he hit his head very hard on the concrete. So he had a brain bleed going on last night. They rushed him to Children's eventually. Um, He has since had surgery early this morning, got surgery, had to remove a piece of his skull and replace it after that, put it back. And uh, he's doing well right now. Um, praise God. And uh, no, nothing short of a miracle there. And uh, so anyway, I, I want us to pray for them. The doctor said we expect him to make full recovery. Uh, but it's going to take some time. So let's, let's lift them up. This is the Hare family, uh, Danny and Megan Hare. Let's pray for them. Pray for their, their little boy that's in their care. Father, we, we come to you uh, with heavy hearts, Lord, as we, as we think about the Hares, Lord, as they gone through what they've gone through in the last uh, 12 hours or so. Uh, Lord, we just thank you so much for your provision. God, we thank you that you have met uh, each need along the way and that you've shown yourself to be close to them, Lord. And, and even as we knelt and prayed last night, uh, you are healing this young man, and I praise you for it. I praise you that you're powerful, that you meet our needs beyond uh, what we imagine even. And so, Father, I, I pray for them. I pray that you continue to be with them, continue to be with this young man. Um, and, Lord, we ask that you continue to heal him, make him whole. Uh, God, we continue to ask for full recovery. And we trust you. Uh, we trust him into your care. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, uh, anyway, thank you guys for that. Y'all keep them in your prayers. Again, you can just write that down in your worship guide if you want. Uh, the hairs. You can be praying for them. So uh, in 1881, a lady named Sarah Winchester inherited more than $20 million after her husband, William Winchester, died from tuberculosis. Now, in 1881, $20 million, that's a lot of money now. That was a gargantuan amount of money back then, right? Um, She also received 50% ownership in her husband's company, which you may have already figured out was Winchester Repeating Arms Company. Maybe you've heard of it. This gave her, uh, along with what she inherited plus what she, uh, the ownership that she got, gave her a daily income of $1,000. $1,000 a day is a lot even by our standards, right? Uh, but that would be equivalent to roughly $25,000 per day today. It's just insane. It's an insane amount of money. Reports say that shortly after her husband's death in a state of great depression, she was also mourning the loss of a child around the same time, she began to believe that her fortune was haunted. And I suspect that that came from this idea that maybe she, uh, after all that she has experienced, was herself just overcome with evil. Um, 
And so she believed that it was her duty to sell all that she had in Connecticut, move out west to California, and build a home to house the evil spirits that had uh, been left behind by all those who had been killed by Winchester rifles. Just incredible, right? I mean, it's, a, it's insane. So she believed that this was a way to appease them, and, and so she moves. And in 1884, she purchased a house in the Santa Clara Valley of California and began building her mansion. She hired carpenters who worked night and day around the clock without stopping until they got to this seven-story mansion. She did not use an architect, and she added onto the building in a haphazard fashion, just as she saw fit or what she thought sounded good. So the home contains, it's still around today, though after an earthquake it's only four stories now instead of seven. <laughs> the home contains um, 161 rooms. There are doors and stairs that lead to nothing at all. They're just there. Um, there are windows that overlook other rooms. So you open a window and you can look into another room. There are stairs with odd-sized risers. So the, the stairs aren't even equal. They're just Some are higher than the other. Um, there's 161 rooms, as I mentioned. There's 40 bedrooms, two ballrooms. One is completed, one is unfinished. There are 47 fireplaces. There are 10,000 panes of glass. There are 17 chimneys with evidence of at least two others. <laughs> there are two basements, three elevators. Uh, Miss Winchester's property was about 162 acres at one time, though now it is a small four and a half acres. That's what it takes to house this property. Um, there was only one working toilet in the house, in all the restrooms, uh, and that one was for Miss Winchester, who lived in the house. Um, she would sleep in other room, a different room every night. She had all those other rooms and bathrooms as decoys for the spirit, she said. There was no rhyme or reason to why she did what she did, to the way that she designed the property. And if Miss Winchester decided that she wanted a set of stairs or a doorway somewhere, she would just do that because she had the money to do it and she had the workers available to do it. Uh, the design is so bizarre that in 2016, just two years ago, they discovered a room that no one even knew existed in the house. Um, the point of this, or the reason I want to bring this up, is because without a plan, without an idea, you never know what something may evolve into. You can start building something, and it just it never goes anywhere. It just as on a whim, you do whatever you want to do. And I believe this can happen in churches too. And we're not here to church bash. Amen? We're not worried about that. But I, I think what happens is, is a local church needs to understand its goals before setting out on a mission. We need to know what we're after. Why is it that we're here? Otherwise, we'll just become like the Winchester Mansion. Uh, the church will lack clarity and direction, and therefore it will lack unity. Without clear direction, there will be no unity. And it's at that point that you see churches split over things like ministries. Why do we do this? Why aren't we doing this? I want to go and do that, or I can't believe you would take that away. So we split over these things. You've seen churches split. Surely you've heard the horror stories of church splitting over wall color or something else, flooring. Uh, here we just decide, hey, let's just leave big gaps in the floor and nobody will complain about the flooring. Amen? So uh, we're going to get that fixed. Um, so it's important, I think, for us to revisit our mission frequently. It's important to come back to these things, not only now at the beginning of the year, but just throughout the year. You'll hear me mention, you'll hear me mention these things throughout the year as we encounter the Bible and, and we see these things there. We'll talk about how these things apply to our mission and what we're after. So as an example, first of all, I want to show you the most amazing drawing you've ever seen in your life. All right, here you go. You ready? This is a pig by one John Ed Gunnels. <laughs> so he drew this one day when he came by for a visit, and I walked back into the sanctuary and I saw that. I was like, that is amazing. <laughs> uh, he was 64 and a half. <laughs> so, you know, he's still learning. Anyway, let's get this out of the way. 
So uh, here's what I want you to do. All right, this is gonna be this will be a little different. We've been doing things a little different over the last few weeks. All right, this is gonna be a little different today too. I want y'all to give me some ideas, just some thoughts. And I know some of you are just extreme introverts. You're like, Mm-mm, I'm not talking. Okay, that's fine. I'm not gonna ask you to talk. I'm not gonna call anybody out. But y'all just rattle off a few things that you think the local church exists for. Like why? Why does the church exist? What is it for? Y'all go ahead. Name a few, and I'm just gonna write some down up here. Building disciples. All right. I'm just going to put disciples. Go ahead. What was the other one? Love of Christ. Show the love. Show love. All right. Something. Sanctuary. Kind of a refuge. Yeah. What was that, Matthew? Teaching. Okay. It's all good. All good. I'm not going to get to the end of this and tell y'all y'all are wrong, so go ahead. My handwriting's awful. Fellowship. Amen. Or koinonia, as we said last week, right? That's a fun word. Anybody use your Greek word last week at all? No? Okay, cool. <laughs> I tried to weird some people out a few times. Let's go do some koinonia together, brother. You know, huh? Anyway, y'all go ahead. <laughs> Anybody got anything else? These are great. Working? Worship. Praise the Lord. Gonna worship. What else you got? Don't laugh at my writing. Okay. Anybody else? These are great. Give me one more. Somebody. Somebody you're like, I got one, I got one, but I don't want to say it. Go ahead. Be bold, say it. Outreach. There's a great one. Very good. All right. So just in a matter of seconds, probably not even a full minute, maybe a minute, we've got that the local church, or the church exists to make disciples, to show love, to be a place of refuge or sanctuary for people who are in need, teaching, fellowship, worship, outreach. Is there one other one? You're just like, you have to get this on the list. If you don't, you're insane. Anything else? Praise. Praise. Okay. I like it. All right. Anybody look at these and say, man, that's a dumb answer? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> these are all great. All right. So here's, here's what I want to submit to you. These are all good and right answers. Absolutely. But even these aren't ends in and of themselves, they are a means to an end. The means to that end is that the local church, and I'm just going to make kind of like a little, just consider that a beautiful umbrella, okay? And all these things are going to fall under this umbrella of we exist to glorify God. All right, this is what I want to submit to you today, that the first job that we have as a church body is to glorify God. This is, this is what we're after. All right? And so, why don't you just write this down in your notes. The church exists to glorify God. And I think this, this applies to... So when you hear the word church, somebody's either talking about the global church, which is all the believers, that's capital C. All right? So it's big C church. They're talking about little C church, your local bodies. These are, we are not the big C church. We're just a part of the big C church as a little C church. Does that make sense? Yeah, We don't believe that we're the only ones going to heaven, right? There's other believers out there, they're going to heaven too, praise God. All right, so we all exist, all of these local bodies exist as one universal body of Christ that is meant to glorify God, all right? So here's, here's where this comes from. In Ephesians, Paul writes that God's specific purpose for the church is that we would bring Him glory. We exist to bring God glory. He, he begins building his case right out of the gate in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 3 through 14 there. He says this, he says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. What's this first part here at the end of the first of verse 6? To the praise of His glorious 
grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. He's talking about Jesus there. It says, in Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him things in heaven and things on earth. In Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit's Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So here's what I want us to see. God the Father chose His children before the foundation of the world and predestines us for adoption as sons and daughters to the praise of His glorious grace. He does that through the blood of God the Son, Jesus Christ, and it's by God's grace through faith in the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ that you obtain redemption, which means that you are forgiven of all of your sins to the praise of His glory. As someone who has been converted from sinner then to saints, you go from someone who is far from God to someone who now walks with God because of your faith and what Christ did for you. As someone who's been converted from sinner to saint, from outsider to child, it says here, it's a promise for you that you have been sealed by the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of your inheritance. Do you know what that inheritance is? It's that you get to be with God in heaven for eternity, but that you also get to enjoy a relationship with God now. So not only now do I get to be with God, but for eternity I get to be with God until we fully possess it. We experience it in part now, and then one day we'll experience it all. But all of that is for what? The praise of His glory. All right, so Jesus, when you're converted from sinner to saint, by God's grace, through faith, you become a member then of Christ's church. You are in a family now, someone who has been adopted into a family. You have the same rights as Christ in this family. It's pretty incredible. You have the righteousness of Christ. You didn't make it in by your good works. Ephesians 2 is clear on that. It's not by your works that you've been saved. It's by the grace of God through faith that you are saved. Ephesians 5 calls the church the bride of Christ. I love this. I love this because the implications are so great. And if you go back to Old Testament prophets and begin to see who we were or who Israel was as the bride of Christ, they were really bad at it. And I think often we're pretty bad at it. The church is what Christ gave His life for. This is what Ephesians 5 tells us, that He lays down His life for His bride. I love what Ray Ortland says. He says, the gospel is not the story of Christ loving a pure bride who loves Him. It's not that you had it all together and Christ finds you easy to love. Amen? He finds you easy to love because of who He is. The gospel story is the story of His love for a whore who thinks that she has nothing to offer and keeps giving herself to others. This is not true of us. If you know your heart even just a little bit, you know that you have the tendency to wonder to something new all the time. And you're just constantly at war with that. So praise God that He loves us even though we're really terrible at loving Him. But why does He do it? Why does He do it? Ephesians 3, 20-21 provides the answer. Ephesians is an incredible book. It's short. If you're looking for something to study, dive in. Ephesians 3, 20-21, we find the purpose of the church as a reflection of God's saving grace and loving care. 
He says that the church exists to be an instrument for God's glory now and forever. Here's what Paul says. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So God saves us from our sins. He removes the stain of unrighteousness from us, and He gives us the spotless identity of saint. And in doing so, He establishes for Himself a people who exist to reflect His glory from generation to generation. From these first century saints that we're reading about right now, all the way to the saints that are gathered here today and throughout the world today, and continuing until Christ returns from generation to generation. Did you know that the church, the, the church is God's chosen way to make His glory known throughout the earth? It says in Ephesians 3.10 that the church exists to make God's will fully known even to angelic beings. That, that not even they that not even they see fully until they begin to see the church at work, and they're like, I get it. And it says that the knowledge of God is revealed to them in seeing the church move from generation to generation. You see, the church is a lot larger than New Life Church Magnolia. We're caught up in a really big plan of God. And, And we're just a very small, though important, piece of that it's a gift really that we get to enjoy what we enjoy so the the church exists to glorify god so as a local body of believers then i think it's clear to say that local bodies exist also to glorify god right many of the things that you mentioned here contribute to glorifying god in fact i would argue that these things don't happen, they don't happen unless God has saved you. Nobody's volunteering for these things unless the Lord has just completely changed their identity. So all those things exist to glorify God. Many of these things do that. But if we exist to glorify God and we know that we need clarity, that's what we're after, right? We're after clarity. What are we trying to do? How are we going to do this? If we know that we exist to glorify God, now we need some clarity on how do we get that done? Then then I think that we need to identify the one thing we must do. The church does exist to glorify God, and you can write this down in your notes also, the church glorifies God by making disciples. The church glorifies God by making disciples, replicating what Christ has done in us continuing that disciple-making work. This is how the church glorifies God. As, as with its purpose, the church is often unclear as to what a disciple is. When I say the word disciple, there's no doubt you think of a hundred different things, right? We're not going to write all hundred down, but let's do this process again. But now, with the word disciple, all right? Don't worry, I'm not going to come in and correct you. <laughs> I'm not. I just want you to throw out some ideas. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Go ahead. Follower? Great. What else? Converting the lost. You're you're now preaching what what you heard. Anybody else? Seth's got three? Wow. Is he relaying them through you, Miss Kay? Okay. Miss Kay doesn't have a problem talking. Go ahead. Obey his word. Great. All right. What else? Love others. Seth bailing y'all out. 
You don't need to give that man a hug. What else? Abiding in him. Love that. Anything else? You're going to dub Seth the champion this time. Hungry for his word. Love it. I really do write terrible. <laughs> Go ahead. Anybody else? But these are great. These are great. They really are. So, as you can see, right, we've all got different ideas of what we think it means to be a disciple. I mean, we hear the word disciple, and it just goes a hundred different directions. So, I think in order for us to do well, to do this well, to make disciples well, it's good to know what we're after. It's good to know what we mean first when we say disciple. And it's good to know what the goals are associated with that. So um, here's what we define. Here's how we've set out to define disciple at New Life Church. I'm not saying that this is the only way to define disciple. This is just the, the phrasing we use for this. You can write this down if you want. It's a little lengthy. Someone, A disciple is someone who is growing in their faith in Jesus and their love toward one another, teaching others to do the same. A disciple is someone who is growing in their faith in Jesus, and their love toward one another, and teaching others to do the same. So, where did that come from? I'm glad you asked. Thank you for that question. It all goes back to the mission statement. The mission statement was, we exist to glorify God by making disciples who grow in their faith in Jesus, and their love for one another. So if that's our mission, if we believe that this is what the Lord has for us, then it's easy for us to say, well, then a disciple must be someone who is doing those things, but also not just doing them, but teaching others to do the same. I think one of the key things to being a disciple of Christ is that you then start to teach others to do the same things. I think Scripture is clear on this. This, this all comes from God's Word. We're not just making these things up. So the first and foremost, Jesus commands that we as Christians make disciples. Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I mean, all these scriptures, it's really hard for me to mention these scriptures. There's so many sermons in all of these scriptures, but we're after, we're after a goal today. All right, so I think there's two things involved in making disciples. One is that the person is converted from sinner to saint. All right, you get a brand new identity. That 2 Corinthians 5.17 hits you, and we don't even recognize you anymore. That 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that you... Uh, have gone from your old self to your new self. You've been given a brand new identity in Christ Jesus. All things have become new. All right, so that's, that's what we're talking about when we're saying somebody's converted to Christianity. It's not just that they take on a set of beliefs. I'm not after your set of beliefs. I think they're important, certainly. But I, I want more than just to know that you believe the way I do because James says even the demons believe and shudder at what they know about Jesus. So it's not enough to believe. I can believe and still be a hellion. But I want to believe and be a Christ follower. I want to believe and I want to grow up in Him. So it's more, we can all name somebody who knows the Bible backwards and forward in a way that we all wish we knew it, yet their life is not a mark of them knowing God's Word at all. Right? Many of you can think of people like that that you've come across in your life. So how does he know so much or she knows so much about God's Word and still live that way? It's got to be more than here. It's not, it's not mere mental assent. It's that your heart is wrecked when you encounter Christ and you know who you are in comparison to Him. I hope that makes sense. So in order to do this, in order to see people converted, we're going to preach the gospel. Namely, we're going to tell everyone just how nasty, rotten, filthy they are when it comes to the righteousness of Christ and our own righteousness, right? We, we have, according to Romans 3.23, 
all fallen short of God's glory. Not one of us is almost there. We've all fallen short. I know people that are sitting in this room who are a way better person than I am, but even they've fallen short. Right? We, we all... So then what, what, what we come to see is that the wages of that sin is death. That because of your sin, you deserve death and hell. This is the truth about the gospel. All right, so gospel means good news. Where's the good news in that, right? Well, the good news is John 3.16, just a verse that we're all familiar with, that God so loved the world that He sent His Son for us so that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. That's the good news, is that God looked on us in our depraved state and said, they need a Savior. And I'm going to send the Savior that I promised ages ago in Genesis 3.15 when I said that there would be an offspring born to a woman and that she would crush the head of that lying, conniving serpent. Or that he would crush the head of that lying, conniving serpent. And that in doing so, all, all are invited into eternal life. So it's by His great love that He sends His Son to die for us. He makes Jesus to know sin, the guy who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that we might become the very righteousness of God. But that is an incredible exchange, right? And you get it because you say, I believe that Jesus is Lord, and I believe that I am nasty and in need of a Savior. Bible says in Romans 10:9 that if you will confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. So this is what we're after. We're after the converting power, the converting power of the gospel. We want the gospel to be so evident that people are saved. So The second thing involved in making disciples is that the person grows in their faith in Jesus and their love for one another. I love this. I absolutely love this wording. I think it's beautiful. Here's why. In Ephesians 1.15, coming right after all of that about what God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit has done for us, Paul says this in Ephesians 1.15. He says, For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Oh, man. Because of this reason, because of your faith in Jesus and your love for one another, your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. But this isn't the only place that Paul commends the people he's writing to because of their faith and their love. In Colossians 1, he does it. In 1 Thessalonians 1, he does it. In 1 Thessalonians 3, he does it. In 2 Thessalonians 1, he does it. In Philemon, he does it. There are other places this can be seen too. Those are the ones I wrote down. In every one of those verses, we see clearly this. The marks of a disciple must be, one, that they have faith in Jesus Christ. That's what saves you. All right? You're saved by faith alone. The second thing is, that they have love for one another. That there's love in your heart for others. And I think the third thing that you see there that's not really said as much is that that faith and that love should be something that others hear about, which means there's fruit from it. And, and Jesus says, this is the mark of my disciple, that they bear fruit. Those who are not bearing fruit, a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. All right, so if you're not bearing fruit, you might be a bad tree. If you are bearing fruit, then you are a good tree. So we've talked a lot over the last few weeks about what it looks like to grow in our faith in Jesus. It happens in large part through the regular faithful practice of spiritual habits, reading and hearing God's Word, just encountering God's Word through the teaching, preaching, through your own reading and study. We encounter God's Word over and over and over again. We pray and we fellowship with other saints. We get together with one another, but not just to watch the Super Bowl. We're going to get together with one another and encourage one another in the faith. We're going to stir up one another for love and good works. It's going to be the goal of our getting together. 
As you draw near to God, He draws near to you. This is what Jeremiah says. As He draws near to you, your knowledge of Him increases. And as your knowledge of God increases, your faith in Him increases. It can't help but increase. For our faith to grow, we must continually come to Jesus. That's all I want to say about faith for today. I just don't have the time. But... Faith isn't the only mark of a disciple. In fact, it's not, even the, it's not even the mark that Jesus said would be our identifier. It wasn't... It's not because of your great faith that people say, man, that person loves the Lord. That may contribute to it. But, it, but it's true that gospel doctrine creates this gospel culture that we're after. That faith in Jesus gives you the ability or creates this culture, this lifestyle in you to where you do love other people. All right, and I like how Ray Ortland describes what, what happens when we come to see Jesus over and over. He says this, he says, we see how massive God's love really is, and so we give up our aloofness and we come together to care for one another in real ways, even as God wonderfully cares for us. There are countless testimonies across this room of the believers showing up to care for you in your time of need. Can can we do this? If you've been affected in a positive way, (laughs) if the believers in this place have shown up to care for you at some point, either just prayer support or bringing a meal or helping you move, whatever it is, there's all kinds of ways you guys are jumping in and helping each other out. If that's you, would you just raise your hand and say, I've been affected by it? Praise God. Praise God. Ortland goes on to say, he said, that is when a church starts looking like a community where John 3.16 dwells in power. He said, that is when the world can see His love and reality, and many will join us in Christ and live forever. Gospel doctrine creates gospel culture, and it matters. Boy, does it. It's that John 3.16 power that Jesus has in mind when He says in John 13.34-35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And then 35 is the kicker. He says, by this, by your love for one another, the world will know that you are my disciples. Incredible. So this is our identifier. Love is God's authorized way for the church to be convincing. Isn't it? It, It's not your great faith or your humility or your great... By the way, if you're walking around bragging about how humble you are, you know. It's not your great understanding of the Bible, though it contributes. It's helpful. It's not your years of service to the Lord, though we are thankful for mature believers in this place. It's not some other metric that you may use to measure yourself against others that matters in the kingdom or makes you convincing to the world as a disciple of Christ. What makes you convincing to the world is the way you love people. That's it. It's your love for others. Ortland nails it with this. He says, love is Christ's authorized way for us to be convincing to the world. He says, people today don't care about doctrine but they do care about love. Now, he's not saying doctrine isn't important. He's just saying doctrine should lead to you loving others. And if your doctrine is not leading you to love others, it's not the gospel. Or you've twisted it in some way that it doesn't look like the gospel. Learning more about God, learning more about what He says, learning more about who He is will never lead you to become less loving. It always leads you to be more loving, more compassionate, more empathetic to those in need. Always. And it leads you to lay yourself down, to humble yourself in this life because you know, you know beyond the shadow of a doubt that one day you will be exalted with Christ Jesus on high. And so I count this life as amazing. I count it as a gift. I count it as beautiful. No matter what ups and downs I may go through, Patricia and I were just encouraging each other this the other day. Just talking about, you know what? 
And life is great right now. Life couldn't be better for us right now. And what we said was, you know what? It's just not always going to be this way. That's not our way of getting ourselves down. And it's just like we said, we're going to live long enough to go through some really difficult times in life. That's just life. But I'm going to decide right now, we together are going to decide to love Jesus through it all and to trust that He is good no matter what. Man, that's difficult. It's hard to do that. But the way we pursue Christ now will help when those times come. So it's your love for people that makes you convincing. I think this requires two things of us, and this is how we're going to wind this down. If you've been here for long at all, then you've heard me mention these two things. Genuinely loving others requires two things. I'll just, I'll just write them over here. Write them up here. All right, number one requires that you be honest. You can write this down in your, in your notes. You've got to write it down, actually. You don't have a choice. I'm not letting you have a choice. All right? First thing is you need to be honest. Now, there's a couple of ways we need to be honest. Number one, Romans 12, be honest in your evaluation of yourself. Don't think that you're better than you really are. I mean, is there a more humbling verse in the Bible than that? <laughs> be honest in your evaluation of yourself. Don't think that you are more important than you really are. Don't think you're better than you are. This will lead you to be able to confess your sins quicker, sooner, and with more hope. You'll confess them to the Lord quicker when you realize, man, I'm, I'm just not as good as I thought I was. I need you, Jesus. Here's where I really, really screwed up this week, or today, or in the last two minutes. Jesus, I need you. So be, be honest in who you are. Confess your sins to the Lord. Be open about your need for the gospel work of Jesus in your life, whether you've been saved for four hours or 44 years. I don't care. Be honest about who you are. Before the Lord first, but also before these brethren around you. Don't try to fool anybody in here. It's just not going to work. We, we know that you're a sinner in need of grace like the rest of us. All right, Jesus proved that when he went to the cross. If there were one perfect man other than Christ, there was no need for Christ to die. But there's not. None of us are perfect. None of us are getting by in life by how impressive we are. All right, so we ask this question a lot around here. Would I rather be impressive or be known? And think about it. You, you can't be both. You're, you're not going to be impressive and be known. It's just not possible. All right, because I'm going to disappoint you, and all these people in here are going to disappoint you. All these things that I talk about, this church will not hit them perfectly, will we? Are we perfect in these things? Good gosh, no. That's the beauty of this church. We know we're not perfect in these things. I'm, I'm talking to the people who call this place home right now. This is the beauty of who we are, is that we know we need Christ every single day, and we wake up saying, I need more of the Lord today than I got yesterday. And goodness, if His mercies are new every day, it must mean we need new mercy every day. <laughs> Praise God He gives it. And so we're going to fail. We're going to fail each other. We're going to miss the mark. But the way we do that well, the way we do that faithfully before the Lord is we don't try to posture ourselves or to prop ourselves up or try to be impressive with one another. And we're not trying to be impressive as a church either. Amen? I'd rather be known by you guys than impress you. I don't want to impress you. That's a lonely Lonely road. I talk to pastors all the time who have to be impressive for their congregations. I don't want that. What a terrible way to live. When, when I read about Paul going and planting churches, I, I love this phrasing. He says, we became as a nursing mother to you. That's not impressive. <laughs> That's gross. All right? But think about the tender care and the love that he's talking about he showed to those saints. All right? that, that means that when he failed, he probably owned up to it. When I mess up, I'm going to let you guys know. When this church makes a dumb decision, and we'll make many dumb decisions. All right? We're human. And we're going to own those. And when we as people make stupid decisions in life, 
Let's own them. Let's say, you know what? I belong to a body. First of all, I belong to Christ, and He saved me knowing that I would make this dumb decision. Second of all, I belong to a body of other believers who are pursuing Christ in the same way that I am right now. And they too make dumb decisions. And I've seen brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so walk through that faithfully. What an example. Amen? So am I going to be impressive or am I going to be known? Being impressive is life-sucking. Being known is life-giving. I think genuinely loving others also requires us to be gentle. All right? Kyle, I don't want to be honest because Christians hurt me. Because the church is brutal. Because, insert whatever horror story you've heard about churches your entire life there. Right? For honesty to work, it's got to be met with gentleness. It will not work otherwise. You ever, you ever fessed up to something to somebody and you're like, all right, I, I hurt this person. I did something really dumb. I need to go to them and apologize. I need to go to them and own that. And then you go to them and you own it and you just have this thing picture going in your mind like, man, they're going to forgive me. It's going to go good. It's going to be amazing. We're going to be best friends again. And then you go and you fess up about that thing and they just go off on you. Blow up. Relationships ruined. There, there is no room in the Christian's life for bitterness and unforgiveness and looking down on others. It's just, there's no room for it. It's anti-gospel. Here's what I mean by that. The, the same gospel which saved you is saving others also. Meaning that you're not perfect and needed Jesus, and so do others. Meaning that the same grace which was shown to you, you are now stewarding as you show or don't show others. You do not get to judge others. Not, not in that way. Not in that way where you're brutal to them. I've seen macho Christianity at work in churches before. It's awful. It's awful. The, the longer I serve Christ, I'm only 31. All right? I haven't served Christ for a terribly long time. The longer I serve Christ, the more I value gentleness. Just dealing with each other in a very loving way. That's the way of Christ. He says in Matthew 11, as he's inviting those who are heavy laden and burdened by religious leaders, he says that, you know what? I am gentle and lowly at heart. You know what he's saying? He said, I'm the direct opposite of everything you've known your whole life. Come to me. Come to me, and I will give you rest. The tendency of believers, for whatever reason, is we like to just heap burden after burden on people. We like to beat people down. We like to throw this legalism on them. We like to, I don't understand it. Other than, I think it's very American of us to do that. I think often we feel like we've got to earn something. You're not earning anything. You're just trusting Jesus with what He's done with your life. You'll grow differently than I grow. You'll grow faster than I grow in some ways. You'll grow slower than I grow in some ways. And the same is true for all of us. And that is okay. Amen? All right. So let me talk to you about this, and then I'm leaving you alone. Here's my hope. When I think about New Life Church 100 years from now, and I do think that way, because I, God He's given me this pastorship for whatever reason. Probably because he likes to take foolish things and confound wise. I get that. He's calling me foolish. I understand this. I know my place. He takes the weak and confounds the strong. That's me. So when I think about New Life Church, I don't think about Kyle as the end-all, be-all of New Life Church. Good gosh, how arrogant would that be? When I think about New Life Church, I think about what we're doing right now impacts us now but it also impacts this church 100, from, 100 years from now if the Lord tarries. So we need to set ourselves up on a foundation that means something 100 years from now. That's why we spend money the way we spend money. That's why we don't build massive buildings. That's why we don't do all those things we talked about last week. We just believe that investing as people is the currency of the kingdom. We want to do things that promote discipleship in people. 
So if we do add on to a building, if we do redo some things around here, it's because we think that's going to help us accomplish that mission. And if we don't think it's going to help us, we're not going to do it. We're not going to feel the pressure to do something that other churches do just, just to be like them. All right? What that also means is, is when I think about the church 100 years from now, I think in these ways. I want to be a part in build a, of building a place where disciples are made. But not only made, where disciples grow, and they grow in their faith in Jesus and their love for one another. We've covered that. I want this to be a place where love is genuine. I want this to be a place where it's okay to not be okay, and it's not okay to stay that way. No, I didn't write that. I don't know who did, but it's good. I think it was Augustine. Isn't that what I learned this week? No, that was a different question. I want to be a part of a place, I want this to be a place where we hate evil and cling to what is good, especially in other people. Now, I'm not saying we hate evil people, I'm saying we hate the evil in them, but we cling to what is good in them, or what could be good. We hold out hope that the gospel will transform. I want to be a part of a place where you walk in here and you're overwhelmed with the brotherly and sisterly affection of this house. I want to be a part of a place where we outdo one another in showing honor. It's not normal for guys to just rip on each other. Well, we might do a little of that. That's just what, that's what guys do. I want to be a place where that even that becomes a little weird for us. To where we're more about encouraging each other, building one another up teaching men how to be men in their homes, teaching women how to be women. Amen? To where the older saints are contributing to that. I want to be a part of a place where we are convincing to the world, not because we grow big and large, not because lots of people may pass through these doors. That's the world's currency. I'm not about that. I want to be a part of a place where we're convincing to the world because of our love for one another. I said this last week, and I meant it. I didn't even write it down, but it just came out, and I've just been thinking on it. I want this to be the safest place in Magnolia for you. Oftentimes, church is one of those places, again, where you feel like you've got to posture and hide and impress. I don't want that to be this place for you. I want you to walk in here and just say, man, it's good to be with my brothers and sisters in the Lord this morning, singing praise. What an awful week it was. What a great week it was. It's good to celebrate that with them too. Whatever. I want that to be this. I... So I just say let's strive to grow in faith. Let's strive to grow in our love for one another. Let's strive to become the most honest and gentle place in town. And let's teach others to do the same. Amen? If you believe that, would you just stand to your feet this morning?